0: The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com.
1: Welcome now to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. John Palfrey, chairman of the Digital Public Library of America and a director of Harvard University's Berkman Center for Internet and Society, recently told the Deseret News that he's been struck by the number of times people tell him that. They think libraries are less important than they were before, now that we have the Internet and Google. He says he thinks just the opposite. Libraries are more important, not less important, both as physical and virtual entities, than they've been in the past. John Palfrey is author of the new book, Bibliotheque, Why Libraries Matter More Than Ever in the Age of Google. And he joins me for the hour to discuss the future of the library. John Palfrey is head of school at Phillips Academy in Andover, Maryland. He also serves as chairman of the Board of Trustees at the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and, as I mentioned, chairman of the Board of Directors at the Digital Public Library of America. Uh, John Poffrey, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. Just one note, Andover's in Massachusetts, where it's very snowy today, as opposed to Maryland. Mar- oh, I'm I I'm <laughs> thrilled I did. to be coming to you from here.
1: I did see the M.A.,
0: it, and, uh, right, it's very confusing,
1: and and that is Massachusetts. I'll probably get an email from my sister who lives in Maryland uh, saying, uh, <laughs> uh, "Duh, you got that wrong." Okay, Andover, Ma- Massachusetts. Uh, by the way, before we get into that, uh, you've been at Harvard, right? Have, you've been the yes, director of library before, there. We're
0: coming to Andover exactly. I was uh, I was a law professor and I was um, a vice dean of Harvard Law School, and part of that responsibility was uh, was. Um, being the library director, which was a ton of fun.
1: But uh, well Now you're over at Phillips Academy. Tell me about a little bit about Phillips Academy, what, when, what's your role there?
0: Phillips Academy is a completely wonderful school. I'm the, I'm the head of school, which is basically the principal of a high school, and it's a, uh, it's a residential uh, boarding school for 1,100 kids, and we have kids from all over the country, including Utah, um, and all over the world, actually. It's a, um, a school that's been uh, around for 238 years. It was uh, founded uh, two years into the, the American Revolution in 1778, um it's a wonderful uh, both traditional school in the sense that it has a very strong um, uh, commitment to academic excellence and uh has a, a really terrific liberal arts program and it's also i think a school where a ton of innovative things are happening and lots of um, uh, new experiments in how teaching and learning are uh, are unfolding in a digital age and we've got just wonderful kids
1: uh so i go from harvard libraries to to essentially the, the you know, I might say It's a high class high school, but it's a a high school, (laughs) right?
0: Amazing high school. Uh Well, these, I mean, partly it's just we really have extraordinary young people here and extraordinary uh, faculty colleagues. Um, And certainly I loved my work at Harvard, but um, but I think um, the school, known also as Andover, really has a a very special place in the firmament of American secondary schools. And um, I think it's a a place where really extraordinary education happens. So I am am blessed to have had the chance to work at Harvard, and I'm certainly blessed to, to be at Andover today.
1: Uh, you're still involved with Berkman Center for Internet and Society.
0: Yes, absolutely, my my research home at Harvard.
1: Yeah, interesting. A uh, lot of interesting issues um, being treated there. I want to get to the the library, of course. I have fond memories of my hometown library, U.N. County Library in, in Vernal. Um, you know, many hours there, and uh, many books. Uh, you know, taken out of that library, um, and I still remember the first book wrapped in plastic that I was able to take home from my elementary school library. I, th- I think a lot of us, uh, John Palfrey, have fond memories, at least of libraries.
0: Thank you, Tom. Absolutely. And I think it is a, a crucial part of the story is how strongly we feel about the importance of libraries in our own lives. And I think many of us have, have those very, very fond memories of the first time, maybe you walked into a library and you had that sense of wonder that sweeps over you as you think about, "Oh my gosh, think of all this knowledge and all these exciting things to, to discover and that, you know, often the library is the physical place where that happens, and the librarians are often the people who, who uh, open up our eyes to that. I think for many people, libraries are uh, a warm place to go on a cold afternoon after school, or a, or a cool place maybe on a hot summer day. Uh, They're places where maybe you've learned something that you otherwise um, didn't know how to do. So for me, the um, going into a library as a 12-year-old, that's where I took a course on babysitting. It allowed me to get my first official paycheck because people hired me as a babysitter. So people gather skills there, and I think today that often has to do with computers and and the skills that we need to thrive in a digital age. Um, So lots of people have different different memories of libraries, but they just just have played such a crucial role in so many people's lives. And I think we've, in a a sense, forgotten how important they are.
1: Mm -hmm. I have fond memories of the Bookmobile as well, you know, uh, include that in the discussion i remember my family would drive it we were closer actually to the library than bookmobile but i I don't know for whatever reason we'd pack all the kids in the car and you know drive out to the rural areas of Uinta county and find the bookmobile and I, i don't know maybe that was a little easier for the parents. I'll have to ask my or mom about that. maybe it was that. cool
0: and you, liked the, you yeah. liked the idea of it.
1: Yeah, maybe so. And I, I certainly did love the idea. You'd, you'd get in this essentially this big van and there would be there were these rows of books and it was very cool. Um, but then changes have come, of course. Um, for example, you talk about this. This resonated with me. You go to a university library today and there are a bunch of young people there uh, studying or doing whatever they're doing very few of them are actually accessing the books on the shelves.
0: It's true. My experience both as a, uh, a library director at Harvard and now as the head of a high school, when you walk into a library, it's full of students. And, and we one of the great things when people worry about education in America, certainly there are places where kids just want to study, and they, they spend their time uh, in environments like libraries, uh, cheek-by-jowl with one another, and, and they are... Uh, learning at a great pace, but but it's quite right that the the activities that students do in libraries have changed somewhat. Uh, it's it's not to say that kids don't ever check out books or don't ever check out uh, movies or audio files and so forth, but they don't do as much of the um, the kind of reaching up into the stacks as they they once did, and they're not as reliant on on the that mode of getting information. But they are often working with their computers right there and accessing just as much information, if not more. They are, uh, they're reading uh, probably just as much, if not more, uh, through different means. Um, but, they, but they often have a, you know, a different use pattern. And I think that's one of the challenges that libraries have faced in the last uh, few decades, which has been to say, we know that people still need the resource of the library, but the way in which they're accessing information has changed some. And, and many librarians, just to be clear, have made that transition beautifully. They're, they're extremely vibrant and effective libraries. But there are others that have really struggled with that transition, and and sometimes in those communities where there is that struggle, um, they have gotten less support. And I think one of the reasons I wrote this book called Bibliotech was was to write it for the rest of us who are are not librarians, but who just love and support libraries and should support libraries through this transition, which I think think libraries will come out of it just fine.
1: You do think they'll come out of it? Okay.
0: Absolutely. Oh, no, for sure. Mm -hmm. And, And I think part of it has to do with um, where you started which is to say that many people have such a commitment to libraries and recognize their value um, that i think you know common sense good sense will prevail uh, i think libraries play such an essential role in our democracy and i think that we are i'm an optimist in the sense i think as we um, when, when we sometimes look at a congress that has struggled to make decisions we've, we get frustrated with our democratic systems i think we will turn back to thinking about what are the core democratic institutions and i think libraries and schools and journalism are all part of that, and and I, I think we will um, we will recognize the importance uh, of these institutions and support them. I hope that's not a naive idea, but but I really believe it. Um, I also think that many librarians have figured out the the story here and figured out the code that says if we can align libraries with the missions of our communities in a variety of ways and to support lots of different things that people need, whether that's an immigrant coming to the country and needing to. Uh, learn a new language or somebody who is a job seeker, um, maybe it's an older person who doesn't have access to uh, the web in the same way that, that other people do, or digital devices, and, and providing them um, uh, with resources. I think as we think about what those uh, alignments are between libraries and communities, um, I think that their uh, the support with libraries will, will only grow over time. But, but we ha- I think we have to make a strong case for libraries in order to ensure that's so.
1: Uh, so I would think for many people, maybe at or near the top of that list, a case for libraries would be, uh, you mentioned, uh, a vital institution in our democracy. I wonder if you could expand on that. Where, where, and you mentioned alongside journalism and others, of course, journalism also under attack, and newspapers are, are threatened in this digital age. But, but libraries as a, as a key institution in our, our democracy.
0: Well, I think libraries are essential to our democracy on many levels. I think one is actually as physical spaces in our towns, and this is something we just shouldn't take for granted, I think, as, as people have the tendency in a digital age to be more isolated from one another, to be using their devices perhaps at home or, um, or by themselves. I think we need places where people will actually come out into uh, what we used to call the commons, to come out into civic space, into public space. And if you think about it, Many of those public spaces have been replaced by commercial spaces. I don't know if it's true where you live, but certainly a Starbucks in, in my town or um, other places that are commercial or wonderful gathering places where people come together. But I think it's actually very important that we have non-commercial. Uh, we actually have public spaces where people come and talk about ideas and connect around ideas. Um, and I think community centers play some of that role. But I think libraries, by virtue of organizing people's interests around ideas and topics and and civic life, um, I think they play an important role in in that sense. I think, secondly, it is not the case that everybody has equal access to information um, in a digital age. So we've worried a lot about the digital divide, the sense that not everybody has a fast broadband connection to their home. Um, We worry a lot about the fact that information is increasingly being something that you you need to pay for uh, when you're going online. So if you are... Um, Looking for ebooks, and you can afford what Amazon offers and others. That's fine, but it's very important, I think, that people have um, both an on-ramp to technological systems as well as access to materials. And if libraries weren't a free place for everybody to get information, I think that would be a negative for democracy. Uh, And I think as as we struggle with growing income inequality in our country, that ensuring that. It's not about how much money you have uh, in terms of your ability to get access to information and skills that you need to thrive in a democracy. And libraries have been a really important counterweight, I think, to that inequality um, you know throughout their history. And I think that I think that's yet another reason why they're pretty central to, to democratic systems. So I could go on and on, but I think libraries just play a crucial role. and I think they are, as I mentioned, alongside schools and alongside journalism, these are institutions that we need, I think, um, to help people be great citizens and, and be great democratic actors.
1: Is there So physical space, But is the, what do you think the role of libraries in the digital space is?
0: So in the digital space, I think libraries um, have a role to play that, that is obvious on one level today, but there's also so much potential that's not obvious uh, going forward. And so I think, I think really there, there are two things libraries need to focus on. One, in the obvious sense, some people do need access to the Internet and can't afford it and don't, don't have high-speed connections and so forth. And, and I think libraries, thanks to the uh, funding from the Gates Foundation and the federal government and others, um, many libraries have, over the last couple decades, become the places in their community where people can go and get, get access through an on-ramp onto the Internet. And I think, I think that's essential. Um, so that's, that's kind of a starting place. A second, second part of that, that uh, current and obvious area has to do with digital materials so uh, many people increasingly like to read books on an electronic device and if what we think of libraries as doing is providing books to people um, I think it's important that libraries provide electronic books as well as physical objects to people and um, that's actually a relatively tricky thing. We can come back to the 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 e-book publishing issue but I think libraries need to be places that actually provide digital materials uh, to people um, and then the non-obvious has to do with what I think libraries could do in a digital age, and, and increasingly are. Um, you mentioned uh, something called the Digital Public Library of America, um, uh, which I used to be the, the uh, board chair of. I've been very involved in um, the DPLA. is a uh, It's an effort across the country to create a digital library for for the nation, and it involves digitizing materials. So it could be um, could be uh, ancestry records um, that you might find uh, in uh, a local collection. It might be um, historical uh, records from a particular town. It might be uh, images that are, that are in a particular archive. Um, but as we digitize all these materials and make them available, um, we're creating it as a national resource where um, anybody can access it and um, create new connections and learn new things. And it's actually an uh, absolutely fascinating project. I hope people will go uh, online to it. It's at dp.la. Um, it's increasingly got the collections of the big national uh, libraries as well, so the um, National Archives and the Smithsonian um, some things from the Library of Congress, um, the New York Public Library, Harvard University Library. Um, as things get digitized, they're getting put into uh, this national resource. And and I think uh, the sky's the limit in terms of what libraries can be in a digital era if we uh, if we create these new platforms uh, in this way. And we'll have a link
1: to the Digital Library of America uh, up on our website as well. Yeah, very interesting project. I want to follow up on that as well. Uh, before we go to break here... Um i want to set up a discussion in the next segment um about threats to the library and how we overcome those. I wonder if you'd tell me the story um kind of this in a talk you were giving I believe um I think you were in the library in andover and uh, it's this is a contest between siri and and the reference librarian
0: yes absolutely so i i one of the ways in which I did this book was to sit in in public libraries and research libraries uh, around the world as I was writing it and One day I was in our local library, and the the time that I like to sit in libraries best is a little after 3 o'clock because often kids are spilling into the library right after school. And uh, sure enough, I was there one day, and and a young person was uh, starting to do her, her homework and said, Um, into the smartphone that she was holding, she said, "Um, Siri, what does terminal velocity mean? (laughs) Um, And Siri did not have an answer for it, which I thought was kind of wonderful, but three or four feet away was a a wonderful reference librarian who I was quite sure not only could have given her the answer, but even better, probably could have given her a way to get the answer uh, somewhere in the library. Um, and that's not to say that at some point Siri won't figure out how to answer all these reference questions, but it really is to say that, that even today, even with things as wonderful as the things that Google and, and Apple and others are producing, um, the human involvement in libraries is so important.
1: It's interesting, I, I love I love that story. Uh it's interesting that the the kid, you know, would ask Siri he or she is in the library, but he or she is asking Siri. So that's exactly, an indication exactly. where, where kids are these yeah. days. Yeah. Uh, Let's take a break. When we come back, um, I want to talk about uh, threats and and this uh, presumption on the part of many. And you've gotten this. I'll have you tell the story about uh, you say this is one reason you wrote the book. People encounter you at parties, find you're head of a library, and you have a conversation. And, And the assumption is that with Google and the Internet, libraries are going to fade away. And your premise, of course, is that they're more important than ever. I want to talk about the threats and how we overcome them following this break.
0: This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. A
1: business leader who built a company
0: came to me complaining, I
2: can't solve all the problems. I just don't have the time. My response was, why are you solving problems? A leader should be a problem clarifier and coach those who stand face-to-face with problems. But good leaders don't solve problems. They help others avoid, prioritize, and yes, sometimes solve problems. It is a real challenge for most of us to let go of the things that we were good at earlier in our careers and move from becoming a problem solver to a problem
0: clarifier. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com.
1: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about libraries, specifically the future of the library. John Palfrey is with me. He is author of a new book, Bibliotech: Why Libraries Matter More Than Ever in the Age of Google. He says that uh, he's been approached by people who uh, encounters many people uh, who say in the age of Google and Internet, uh, libraries uh, will be faded in importance. Uh, he says the opposite is, is true, that uh, they're even more important than ever. And uh, along with talking with John Palfrey, and we have our first caller who is Sherry in St. George. Sherry, glad you called. Go ahead your question or comment.
3: Hi, Um, love the library, have have always loved the libraries, but I I did want to bring up one issue about them, and I am not against homeless people, I'm for homeless people. Although I'm not homeless, who knows what could happen in the future, but I do notice it seems to be a um, converging point because it is a public space for homeless people and even have been at different libraries here in Utah where I've noticed people living in their motorhomes. Now, it's personally, I don't feel afraid. I have been in a couple of other cities where I have been afraid of some of the people that hang around and um, some of the way that they're dressed. They're not bathing. They're just smelly. What do you do about that? Or yeah. is there anything that can be done about
1: that? Yeah, yeah, good point. I've uh, I've encountered that as well. I've heard from people uh, that this is it's it's a public space, of course, and 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 everybody is is welcome. Uh, so, how does everybody get along there, uh, John Palfrey? What do you think?
0: Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Sherry, for for calling in and for your support of libraries. You certainly are touching on one of the things that I think is hardest for public librarians uh, to handle, which is how do you ensure that the library is a welcoming space to everyone, including those who are homeless and those who haven't had access to a shower recently, that kind of thing, while also ensuring that those who, who might be uh, you know, fearful of, of um, uh, being around large groups of homeless people can, can actually take advantage of the library. So I think one of the things that libraries have done effectively is to, um, is to try to uh, ensure that there, there are safe spaces and spend a lot of time... Um, figuring out how they can partner with other institutions around, such as the um, social workers and others who can uh, connect with people. Um, certainly, there is there are the times when when libraries have to work work with police if so people do become disorderly and so forth. But I, but I do think that in a way libraries are microcosms of our democracy in the sense that that we all have to figure out how um, how in public spaces we do we do coexist and. And certainly, libraries are again one of those few spaces that are truly public in our in our towns and our cities. And I think we have to. I think we. It's, it's on all of us to figure that out. Um, and you know, one one of the approaches I think that libraries have have tended to take is to have different kinds of environments within the library, so different kinds of zones. Um, and in that sense, there might be zones that are places where people might be more comfortable um, lounging for large areas of time, and other places where people are more likely to be studying or more people likely to be. Um using digital devices or increasingly things like maker spaces where people are actually making things in libraries um and I think that zoning effect also can help um help with the issue that you're that you are raising but but it's not a simple one and it and it really does it does um consume a lot of the time and energy certainly of, uh, of public librarians and we should we should give them more support
1: uh sure are you still with us yes um i wonder have have uh, have you talked to you know friends librarians there is there uh, you know, are others uh, proposing no, solutions, sir?
3: I don't notice the problem here in St. George, but I have been to some other um, cities, and I will, uh, And they are in California, which is close to us and um, bigger cities, and it is a very big problem, and people have complained about it. I feel I have a lot of feelings for of some of the homeless people. I have a sister that lives on the street of San Francisco, has for 40 years. Where do you go when there are people like that? I, I don't know what the answer is to that. I'm just bringing up the idea of it is a public place, and I do notice that people are... Using it as um, parking space for their motorhomes, and and I and I recognize the motorhomes in different towns, and that has been in Utah.
1: Right. Okay. Thank you, Sherry. Appreciate you bringing that uh, issue up.
3: You're very, very welcome.
1: Uh, so, John Palfrey, the, um, I guess this this is. I don't want to say the downside of democracy. <laughs> I don't want to, you know. It's one to... of the
0: challenges of democracy, right? The challenge not, of of it's democracy. It's itself.
1: it's everybody together. That's one illustration yep. of that. It's everybody together at the library, right?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And I do you know I think it, one of the things that it points out is is how challenging the job of a librarian can be, uh, particularly in a, in a big city environment. And and I appreciate Sherry's point that it's it's different in certain small towns and so forth. But you know I think a librarian not only has to be someone who is uh, great with with materials and and knows how to uh, to order books and to make them available and and to direct people to resources and so forth. But they also often are social workers and they have to be, um, you know, keeping people safe and they do lots of different lots of different functions in, uh, in these quite complex uh, jobs that they have.
1: And I guess this is a further illustration that sometimes we don't want to all be together as a democracy. But I guess it's it's a it's in, very it, good point. It is important to, uh, I guess this is an advantage. Uh, you know, glass half full. Here, we, we we ought to encounter each other.
0: Yes, I think that's right. I think I think it is, and 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 figure out how we do it, as opposed to expect somebody else to to do the sorting for us.
1: Yeah, uh, I wonder if you would uh, tell us. Uh, you have this this way you opened, I think, chapter one in your book. You had a recurring conversation at, at parties and such. One of the spurs, you said, uh, to, to writing this book.
0: Yes, thank you, and Tom, thank you. I should say how how grateful I am that you clearly read the book with with such care. Thank you for that. And when somebody uh, in your previous session, thank you for doing a non-vapid interview. I'm I'm very grateful <laughs> to be on a non-vapid interview we, with you. We You're we try to be
1: everything. non-vapid. Yes, I think that's one fabulous. of the goals here. That's, yeah. that's
0: a good tagline. I think yeah, for, yeah. for your show. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so one of the one of the spurs for writing the book uh, called Bibliotech was uh, the conversations that I had over and over again, and it was backyard barbecues or cocktail parties and I had just been appointed uh, to a new job and, at Harvard Law School, and, and my friends knew that I was a lawyer and had been a, a law professor. And they would uh, say, "What are you up to?" And I say, "Well, I, I'm um, uh, becoming the director of the library." And they would say, "Oh, that's kind of interesting, but you know, aren't art libraries..." Going away now that we have Google, and then they they turn to me and say, "Oh yeah, and you are interested in the digital stuff, so you're the digital guy. You're going to get rid of the library. Now it all makes sense." And then they'd be headed off to the bar or, or to the um, to the uh, barbecue and to grab a, a burger or whatever. And I'd say, "No, no, no, that's not the point at all." And I'd be chasing after them, and they never would want to talk anymore. So I figured I had to write a book to uh, to make this case. Um, the flaw in that argument is, of course, if they didn't want to talk to me about it for three minutes, they probably didn't want to read the 200-page book about it either. Right. But um, in any event, I felt it was important to make this case because it just stood for—it stood to me for a proposition that I think much of the time we're not thinking deeply enough about the importance of libraries. And I really felt that the the threats that some libraries are facing are worth putting in front of public attention. I'm I'm really grateful for you doing this show in this way. I think one of the things that librarians have faced is, is certainly budget cuts, and this is you know, no surprise of social services and, and public services in our country have been under budget, uh, budget pressure, and that's true for the police, and it's true for fire, and it's true for um, schools and all the essential services. So it's not, not, uh, libraries are not alone, but there are many places in which libraries have seen their budgets cut or their hours reduced, uh, many places where, uh, in big cities where, where branch libraries get closed uh, because of lack of funding, uh, certainly one of the places where it's it's pinched the most is school libraries. Uh, Tom, you mentioned in the top of the hour your experience coming home with a wrapped book from a school library, and that's a really important part of the library experience. If you look at America, um, there are about 125,000 libraries of various sorts. 100,000 of those are actually school libraries, um, and those are um, very, very often uh, co- highly correlated with with good school outcomes. So if you have a great school library, you're very likely to have good school outcomes. Um, And yet, those are some of the the quickest things we cut. So libraries, I think, because people have assumed that they're less important during the age of Google, have suffered from these cuts. And I think it's actually really important that we recognize libraries are not that expensive on a relative basis, and they really pay off in in lots of different ways, and, and we ought to support them.
1: Um, I went to Amazon and uh, read some comments. I don't know if you read the. Do you read the comments? Uh, I try um, and, not to. Book? I did read the very first
0: one, and, then, and it was okay. a, a negative comment, and I th- really disagreed with it. So I've, I've decided not to focus on them.
1: Well, there are a lot of glowing comments. I'll just let you know, and, and a lot that's of people nice, agreeing with you. There's only you know uh, just uh, two or three that uh, disagreed. I want to, re- <laughs> but I, I want to read a paragraph from one who disagreed with your premise. Oh, good. Uh, to to you know, and and then launch into a, a fuller defense of of libraries. Uh, this is David on Amazon responding to uh, John Palfrey's book, Bibliotech. He says, saving public libraries is like saving the newsreel before the feature film. When people had no other way to get visuals, the newsreel was hot. When information was nowhere to be found, the public library was a godsend. And so his, I guess his point, he's, he's agreeing with the assumption that some people have uh, that Google, Internet, you can get the information other ways, uh, and so the library is, is going to fade away. What, uh, why do you think it's not, and why do you think it's still you know, even more important?
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for channeling the the Amazon comments because I haven't haven't peeked at that one myself. Um, but it's a, it's a great example, which says, you know, I think it's an assumption that because we have the internet, um, we have everything we need when it comes to information and knowledge. And I think it's just it's just plainly not true. First of all, not everything, of course, has been digitized, and um, I think that's a, something we need to need to work on. Um, not everything on the internet is free. So if if you're if you're seeking to access, for instance, a book or um, or uh, Certain materials that you have to pay for—it could be a, a song or a movie or otherwise. Those are um, things that you do need to pay for. And I think if we go to a world in which only those who have the discretionary income to pay for a book or a movie can get it on Amazon, I think that's—I think it's a huge, huge mistake. And I, I love uh, bookstores and, and uh, use the internet extensively, but um, but I also think it's it's really important that people who don't don't af- can't afford it can can get access to things. I also think it's there's a there's a lovely quality to the fact that we. Um, don't need to own every item. And in fact, we can share some of them in, in our society. I think that's actually a, a really important point, and libraries um, have that quality. So in essence, what we're doing is pooling our resources in a community to have a bigger collection than any of us could, could possibly have. And I think even in a digital era, that's important, and, and libraries uh, carry that out. Um, but I'd also go to the the point we were discussing before your previous break, which is I think actually that libraries are related to journalism uh, and to schools in this way, which is if you say because there's the internet, anybody can get access to anything that happened, we therefore don't need newspapers or we don't need um, thoughtful radio programs or we don't need thoughtful uh, television journalism. I think that's crazy. Um, I think a lot of what we need is in fact people to focus on and interpret what's going on to do good interviews to um, to do investigative journalism to Spend the time to think about something for an hour or for a period of time that then reinterprets it and, and engages people in a conversation. If the entire point is we just let people Google away and then figure out, okay, what's going on in Utah today, um, first of all, they won't find things that are in depth. They won't find actually those things that we ought to pay for that, that journalists do. Um, and second of all, there, will, there, there won't be necessarily that productive engagement um, that these institutions like libraries and and uh, and uh, 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 journalistic institutions actually create for
1: us. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, I want to talk about um, this problem. Um, I guess a lot of people see this as a a solution. Um, The issue, I'll put it that way, of e-books, digital books. and I'm conflicted on this. I, I still remember that. The thrill that I got with that physical book that I took home from my elementary school library and continued to have for many years. But I'm increasingly purchasing books uh, from Google, reading them from the cloud. But in that case, I should put purchase in in air quotes, you know. So I want to talk about that and how that relates to, to libraries. More following the break.
0: Back when oil was up, so too was Dickinson, North Dakota. But that was
1: then. I'm sitting here waiting, praying that a car pulled into my parking lot, and
2: we looked like a bunch of vultures the minute they walked in the door. I was like, hey, thank you for coming here,
0: you know. I'm Kai Rizdahl. Beware the boom and bust. Next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 630 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraxcess at gmail.com.
1: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is John Palfrey. He's founding president of the Digital Public Library of America. He's a director of Harvard University's Berkman Center for Internet and Society, and author of the book Bibliotheque, Why Libraries Matter More Than Ever in the Age of Google. We're talking about the future of the library on the program uh, today. Uh, many of us have very fond memories of libraries, but I uh, think uh, over time, for some of us at least, the our use of the library, the way we use it, has changed. And some have made the assumption in the age of Google and the internet that the library will just fade away. John Palfrey says that's not so. They're more important um, nowadays than, the, than even before. Um, John Palfrey is head of school at Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts. So John Palfrey, uh, first of all, to get us into this, uh, you know, the digital issue and e-books, I don't know um, what your attitude is and people you talk to. Are you still reading physical books or are you migrating more over to e-books?
0: Thank you, Tom. You know, I, I am one of the people who probably occupies a middle ground, which is I, I love physical books. I love the touch of them. I, I have two small children. I love to read them physical books. I sort of can't. It's hard to imagine reading them a digital book, although I have. Um, and I think many people still like the book, touch of physical books for what people call the three Bs, the bed, the bath, and the beach, um, certain experiences. At the same time, I'm a big fan of the Internet and use it extensively and create on it and so forth, but I also really like um, using my iPad. I like a, uh, the uh, Amazon Kindle interface. Um, if I'm traveling in particular and I've got a, a very heavy suitcase or bag, um, to have a relatively small device and have a huge number of books I can go to, um, that's very appealing too. And Um, So what I've seen is that that there still is uh, a a large group of people who Likes uh, physical books. There's a growing number of people who likes ebooks, but I think the fastest growing group is actually those who like both for different different purposes. And it's been really interesting to see that particular world emerge. It's not one or the other. Um, I often think about it as a hybrid world um, or a digital plus world in the sense that things are created as a digital file first, but then we render them in lots of different uh, in different ways. So think about the newspaper that was created this morning. No doubt a, a journalist typed that up on a, a word document. Um, and it goes on the web or it goes on a, a mobile app, but it also gets printed out for some people who like it in a hard copy. And I think we're going to be in this hybrid digital plus environment uh, for some time. Uh,
1: beyond that period of hybridity, um, do, do you think it's going to go all digital? And I guess maybe a good testing point would be your, your, your students. How do they consume
0: yeah, it's, it's a really books. interesting question. Um, I don't think the switch is happening as fast as some futurists imagined it would, in other words, going to all digital. I think the physical book has been more persistent than most people um, predicted a few years ago. In part, it's because they're beautiful, and people actually like beautiful objects, um, in part because uh, I think some people you know, really do uh, enjoy the tactile experience of books and so forth. Um, one thing I've been a little surprised at, I, I teach a, a U.S. history class at, at Andover um, to a group of Uh, 12 or 14 kids each year, and um, we give them the option of purchasing the book itself, which is a little over $100. It's Eric Foner's uh, really great history of uh, United States. called Give Me Liberty, Um, or they can get for about a third of the price. They can get a digital version of it, um, and uh, almost to a young person, they bring in the physical object. So I think there's only been one student in the last two years out of, say, 25 kids who's actually bought the digital version. Um, I think when I ask them about it, it's about the annotation possibilities. They rather write in the margin of a physical book. Um, somehow they still see it um, and visualize the, the information a little bit better in the physical book than on the, uh, on the smaller device. Um, so I think even, even with young people today, I think um, the, the physical book has been uh, surprisingly persistent. Uh, I, you know, I do think over time digital uh, interfaces just continue to get better and better and better. I think that annotation topic of writing in the margins, I think digital uh, devices will get better at that. I think um, the, the interface will get will get lovelier and crisper over time. So, you know, I think it, it probably will go all digital for most things uh, over time, but but I, I would imagine that some physical books will persist.
1: Now, when we bring this issue to libraries, I think ownership become, becomes an, an issue, right? With a physical book, library could purchase the book and then lend it out to whoever they wanted to as many times as they wanted to. The rules are a bit different with digital Exactly
0: right. It's It's such an interesting point, which is we've gotten used to libraries being places that can own objects, and it's a, it's a particular part of the copyright law, which is called the first sale doctrine. And it basically says if you buy a physical object of a, of a book or a copyrighted work, you can do anything you want with it. So you can go bring it to a secondhand bookstore. You can, as a library, you can lend it and so forth. If you felt like you could tear it up and you know, uh, turn it into something else or, or uh, throw it away or whatever. Um, with the digital object, you don't have the same set of, of rights. So um, libraries, when they're acquiring digital materials, most of the time they're renting rather than buying. Um, so if you extrapolate out a couple decades, and let's just imagine that you're right, Tom, that it goes um, all digital or close to all digital, uh, one of the fears that, that many of us have is what if we get to a place where libraries don't actually own any collections, um, and therefore we as the public don't own any collections. It's only held uh, in private hands through these, these licenses. Um, it turns out that publishers who are wonderful and, and have provided important service in our, uh, in our economy, publishers don't tend to keep things um, in the same way that libraries do or archives do. Um, so one of the fears is if we're in an all-digital environment and libraries actually can't acquire and hold um, for the long term, preserve these items, um, in a digital era, we actually could be, could be in real trouble. And so we've got to figure out a way to, to head off that future.
1: I want to fit uh, in a couple of emails that have come in. Uh, this email has come in to us from Glenn. He says, an anecdote from my younger years. My mom was an avid reader. Her biggest vice in the reading genre was Harlequin romances. Mm. She uh, bought them monthly, then donated them to either the bookmobile or the library. At one point, she donated a book and found out that it had been overdue for eleven years. She had somehow checked it out and forgotten about it. How she was able to check out books during that time was lost on me, but uh, she had the record for longest overdue in Duchesne County. That's <coughs> <Awesome. laughs> thanks. I love it. Thanks, Glenn. She'd buy the books and donate them, and this this one <laughs> this one happened to be an overdue book. Um, And then this is from uh, Carla. She says, I'm so happy to hear this discussion. The free public lending library is one of of civilization's greatest gifts. I've been a card-carrying library-using member since first grade in 1960. It was a wonderful day when I was able to print my name and receive my own first library card. Reading enjoyment was my responsibility, and now I had access to what seemed like bazillions of books, Walls of floor to almost ceiling books, shelves and shelves and shelves of wonderful stories and facts and friends in books. The Draper Library was located in one high ceiling square room in Draper Park School. Library Day at School was a highlight of my week. We sat bunched together on the floor as the librarian read us a story. Madeline, make way for ducklings, Aesop's fables, the three little pigs, craning our necks to see the pictures. Then she turned us loose. I love the sanctity, the rustling semi-quiet, the smells of books, dusty, sweaty kids, and spicy cinnamon smell of imagination mingled with the colors of the bindings and the butterfly tummy excitement of choosing. Time stood still in the library. It still does, says Carla. I'm learning Spanish language now through my St. George Library's resources. love to be there when story time is going on and applaud our library's literacy programs and summer reading programs for both children and adults. Just because it's available online doesn't mean people can read or even have electronic access. Long live this great gift of civilization. That's Carla. Very poetically put, uh, Carla. Thanks for that. Uh, John Palfrey, what do you think?
0: Oh my gosh, those were awesome. I think you should bottle them up and and uh, and share them, which I guess you're doing when you record this this uh, session. And it'll be available for posterity. But I think both of those are, are wonderful memories, and and Carla certainly wonderful lyricism, and and I think the. Uh, it's always good to have a joke about overdue books on any session about libraries. So <laughs> right, I think it was really, really terrific, and and I think really hit hit all all those key points. Um, the only the only um, thing I might add is that I am hoping that we will create not just the nostalgia that we all have had um, for libraries, but also a new kind of nostalgia for kids um, as they're growing up in this increasingly digital world. And I think that that smell of uh, of musty books and um, and probably the sweaty bodies part is, is all, all going to be true as part of that nostalgia for kids. But I actually think also um, the, the creation of digital interfaces um, that come from the library and actually augment that experience. I think that's going to be quite important in terms of building the support for libraries for decades to come. Um, and so that's where I think a lot of the innovation and, and the exciting stuff that's happening in libraries is so important also to invest in.
1: We have another caller, uh, Irene, uh, colleague us from Canada. Irene, uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment.
2: Hi. Um, this is a, a, an emotional topic for me. Um, I have a lot of kids, and when we first moved to Alberta, it was a recession, and um, the library was a free space where we could access many, many things. And so I think more than ever in this day and age with what's been going on with the economy that it's very important to keep programs out there that are free available I have kids that um, are very successful they don't have financial concerns um, but they bring their kids to the library because that was just something that we did like several times a week we participated in all kinds of wonderful programs and my children continue to bring their kids like right from six months up to participate in the programs. Uh, It is a community centre, and yes, there are homeless people even here in Medicine Hat that frequent it, Um, and I just take my hat off to the librarians that very beautifully deal with whatever they get thrown at them, and I don't think... Libraries are on their way out. I agree. I think people need to embrace using both systems—digital and, and hard copies. Um, so there you go.
1: Uh, Irene, thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Okay. Bye. John Paul, another another uh, uh, you know plug for, for libraries from from uh, really, really beautiful personal experience. One, yeah.
0: Irene, thank you. That was it's an incredible incredible way to put it, and and certainly the emotion in your voice underscores importance, I think, that libraries play in people's lives and 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 in a family's life and family's life over multiple generations. It, I really, I really couldn't couldn't put it any better.
1: So that the, that emotional component, the the you know the wonderful memories, um, as we mentioned earlier in the program, if we want to save libraries, probably going to have to tap into that. And uh, and I hate to put, bring this back to crass in economic terms, probably going to have to. I don't know, it's going to have to be more tax dollars, is it? It's going to have to be fundraising for libraries? What, uh, is that a component here, the economic part of it?
0: Sure. I, mean, I think the economic part of it is, is a part of life in, in all respects. And I think thinking about even nonprofit institutions, which libraries, I think, need to be, um, having a sustainability plan is, is a crucial one. So I mean, for, my, for, for my part, I think it's just important that, that communities pay for libraries. I think that it is a public good. I think states should contribute, and I think the federal government should contribute, and I think I think libraries just aren't that expensive compared to other things that we uh, we do pay for in, in public terms. So I don't I don't think one should say one has to raise taxes in order to have strong libraries. That seems to me um, creating a false choice. Um, but I but I also think that libraries do have a long history of philanthropy being a part of it, and that that is you probably know that the first public li- big public library in, in the world was the Boston Public Library in, in uh, around 1850. Um, so it's not actually that long of a, of a history. Um, and the the people who supported that, the, the city was helpful, but it really was a bunch of philanthropists who came together and said, let's have a public library. And you then have, about 50 years later, or so you have Andrew Carnegie saying he's going to devote a lot of his wealth to, to libraries, and, and that resulted in thousands of libraries across the country um, because of Carnegie's gift. But he also said to towns, if I give you this money and you follow a set of rules that I have, you then have to continue to support it over time. So it was a leveraging of private money um, with public money in that way. And I actually think that it, it would be great if there were uh, individuals these days who have made a lot of money on the Internet and, and on uh, information and knowledge who would step up and say, we're going to support this next generation of libraries. And I think a capital infusion it would help do a lot of the research and development work about how libraries thrive in, in a digital or digital plus era, I think that I think philanthropists should play a big role in that. Though I think that the ongoing support of libraries should continue to come from uh, from communities and from from public money. Uh,
1: John Palfrey, I wanted to get this another another comment from uh, Amazon. This one uh, doesn't slam you. This, <laughs> but this, <laughs> but thank you for that. But um, and and I want to emphasize again that the vast majority of the comments are 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 glowing and agree with you. Uh, this is, he does say that this is one thing Mr. Palfrey missed, and I, I thought this was an interesting take. I want to get your take on this. Um, he says, uh, the, the real value libraries used to deliver, and he goes on to say, this is Paul, by the way, on Amazon. History widely dispersed on paper is difficult to modify, but history centrally controlled in digital format is owned, quote, unquote, by some information authorities and thus subject to revision. We're part of the famous information age, information very easy to access, but it's also highly vulnerable to hijacking any offensive PDF, JPEG, uh, HTML, etc. files can be modified or removed quite easily, since their virtual embodiments can be centrally controlled. Uh, and he goes on to say that uh, you know history could be changed because these documents can be changed. I wonder if you think about what do you think about that?
0: It's an interesting point, and, and you're inspiring me to go read the the comments on Amazon, which I probably should do, and not not hide my head in the sand. But um, uh, I, you know, I, there is two big things that libraries do. One is they uh, provide access to information and and to knowledge, and the other is they preserve it. And and that preservation piece is very, very important. Uh, I'm not totally convinced that the digital era is going to be less good as a time in terms of preserving materials. Um, I guess I agree with Paul uh, and his his comment to say right now we're not as good at that. Um, I think that the, the idea that there's only one version of history, though, kind of misses a really big point, which is even if you could manipulate one document, one thing the Internet has done is it has shown that lots of people can actually contribute to the telling of a story, um, the telling of a narrative, and create their own uh, materials. There's a a sort of a a production uh, quality to the Internet. So I'm I'm less convinced that there's a risk that there's going to be one version of what the truth is um, on the Internet that then could be changed. I just don't think that's a huge risk. Um, but I do think that the big issue is that we need to figure out how do we preserve the digital future as well as we preserve the, the, the analog past, and, and that's a real issue.
1: Uh, finally, just about a, a minute left. Um, in a best-case scenario, um, you know, fast-forward X number of years, what, what does the library look like?
0: Oh, my gosh. I think the library looks like lots of different things for different communities. Honestly, I think they will be beautiful spaces uh, that support uh, what, the, what people are doing uh, in those places and in those communities. And and they will be inspiring places. They'll be places where people want to go and do things. Um, I think people will be in libraries to consume and enjoy information as they do today, but also to create information. Um, I think they'll be in, in libraries to come together and to talk about the most important issues of the day um, through innovative programming, um, and I think they will. I think they will be as varied and diverse as our great country is, and 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 our and other countries around the world. So um, I think there's a hugely bright future for libraries. I think we just have to be imaginative about it, and and really grounded, and recall the importance that these institutions play in our lives and in in the lives of our democracy.
1: John Palfrey is uh, founding president of the Digital Library, uh, Public Library of America, and we'll have a link to that on our website. I urge people to go and check out that very interesting uh, uh, library. Uh, he's the director of Harvard University's Berkman Center for Internet and Society and author of the book Bibliotech: Why Libraries Matter More Than Ever in the Age of Google. John Palfrey, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Um, thank you. I really appreciate the time to talk about libraries with you.
1: And uh, thanks to our listeners for responding. I appreciate uh, those uh, those questions and comments on today's uh, program. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah Today.
4: Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lale Gilbert. I'm not really a food expert. I'm more of an expert on eating. I'm really good at eating good food perfectly ripened peach, all fuzzy and firm, or a spiced green curry with a nice bit of garlic naan. But the truth is, I don't really mind bad food either. Insect flour, insanely hot ghost peppers, watermelon Oreos. I'll try anything once. Being open to new foods has served me well. I've made friends, gained a better understanding about cultures, and enjoyed all the richness that comes from variety, whether the experience turned out to be a good one or a bad. When I try something new, my brain sort of downshifts, and I process sensory input in a way different from the times I'm stuffing a PB&J in my mouth for the 3,000th time. With new food, I sense nuance and taste. I notice flavor and texture. My brain searches for comparable experiences to help categorize and understand what is happening to me. I grapple for the words to describe it, Trying new foods helps me get more out of eating and makes my brain happy. Some people aren't very good at eating. I know a kid who ate slices of cheddar cheese dipped in yellow mustard for lunch for two years straight, although he eventually did grow out of it. There is also my friend who'd rather have her toenails extracted with pliers than to eat a fresh tomato. Sometimes I want to grab her shoulders with a little shake say, You're missing out! But I get it. She probably had a bad experience. Maybe she got sick after eating too many or maybe a tomato killed her hamster and she never recovered. Getting over food aversions can be tricky. Our brains are programmed to protect our bodies from things perceived as threats. I remember one dinner explaining to my resistant four-year-old that he could chew that piece of cantaloupe and swallow it even if he didn't like it. He was dumbfounded by the idea. His body was screaming at him to spit out the offending slushy orange chunk, and I was telling him that he could ignore that and keep chewing? The very idea rocked his world. But he stuck with it. Now he likes cantaloupe. Well, at least he tolerates it. Eating disorders are nothing to take lightly, and I would never be flippant about that struggle. But if you are a middle-of-the-spectrum picky eater, there are a few secrets that can help you become a good one. Step 1. Try lots of foods. Train your brain to automatically reply with an enthusiastic yes anytime someone asks, Would you like to try a bite? Remind your brain that you don't have to fill your stomach with a seafood goulash or blueberry chutney unless you actually like it. And you might. If it turns out to be disgusting, don't categorize the difficult mouthful as a failure. Chalk it up as a new experience. And you can never have too many of those. Step two, be hungry. We spend precious little time in modern America with our stomachs less than full. Hunger can be a useful tool. Something changes biologically when your stomach is sending desperate little hunger tweets to your brain. Your standards shift your prejudices fall. Where you might have once turned up your nose at Brussels sprouts and butter sauce, they may become a tiny bit appetizing. Step three, try a new food at least seven times before you set up any categorical embargoes against it. It takes a long time for your brain to disassociate the cherry tomato from the dead hamster. Keep at it. If, the food itself, or the social experience around it is worth it to you. Eventually, the smell, the taste, the texture of the experience will change pathways in your brain. Tomatoes might eventually bring to mind sun-drenched vegetable gardens or the sweet cold crunch of a green salad. But to create these new pathways takes a willingness to actually try the food over and over again. If you refuse the food right away, your original impression won't change and you'll be stuck with the thoughts of dead hamsters forever. That's my two cents. If you want to hear more advice about potty training your child, or which cell phone to buy, or any other topic already weighed down with too many opinions, let me know. Meanwhile, try something new. It's worth the experience. This is Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter. This is Ted Twinting, and I am a development officer with Utah Public Radio. Underwriting with UPR allows you and your business to capture the attention and ears of informed, educated, and savvy consumers across the state of Utah. To learn more about becoming a sponsor with UPR, call our development team at
1: 435-797-3141.